Father, we come before your word humbly this morning, and we pray that you might give us ears ready to hear. Amen. Clipboards fill me with terror. Stick with me. It's not a strange phobia, I promise. But clipboards fill me with terror. Why? Uh, because they remind me of when I used to be a school teacher uh, and the head teacher or deputy head or Ofsted inspector would come into my classroom, sit at the back and with a complete poker face, sit there scribbling down notes on a clipboard. And I could never really tell what they were thinking what their judgment of my teaching was going to be. And sometimes I think that we live our lives as Christians, imagining that God has a clipboard. Some of you might have seen a TV show called The Apprentice. A group of wannabe business people are given tasks to perform. And the entire time, someone follows them around with a clipboard writing down notes on how they're doing. And perhaps we feel as Christians that that's what God does. He quietly follows us around everywhere we go, always watching, always making notes on how we're doing, ready to give his judgment at the end. And because we don't know what he's writing, we don't know what his judgment of us is going to be, we, as Christians, take up our clipboards and we imagine what God's mark sheet might be like, uh, the criteria that he might be using to, uh, to score us. And we sort of create a sheet of our own, a scoreboard, and we go through our days marking ourselves by it, recording what grade we think God might give us today. I didn't read my Bible on the bus this morning, but I was kind to that person at work who really grates on me. I didn't make home group this week, but I did finish that Christian book or podcast. And then we slip into using our clipboards to start grading each other. That, that's what was happening in these churches in Galatia that Paul was writing to in this letter, with Jewish believers pulling away from uh, Gentile believers, eating separately and starting to judge these Gentile believers, for not following the Jewish customs. We sit there with our clipboards and we wonder, how am I doing? How are they doing? If that picture resonates, then I think we will find Galatians 3, 15 to 25 very helpful. But before we begin, a bit of context. Um, it's essential as we come to this passage that we understand that the law of Moses, uh, given to Moses at the top of Mount Sinai, written down in Exodus and Leviticus, was, for God's people, a really big deal. It might feel a little bit remote, a little bit removed for us here today, but for God's people, the law given to Moses was incredibly important. Uh, think the, uh, the 2010 Equality Act that enshrined equal pay, race relations, sexual and disability discrimination rules into UK law. Or the 1998 Human Rights Act that granted fundamental rights to life, to freedom of expression, 
and to a fair trial into our law. Or go back further, go international. The 1950 European Convention on Human Rights, the 1776 American Declaration of Independence, the Magna Carta in 1215, the monarch for the first time being brought under the rule of a law which applied to even them as a citizen. All important laws, not one of them, comes even close to the impact that the law of Moses had had on the Jewish people for the millennium and a half since God had given it to Moses to the time of Jesus. As we come to these verses, we must understand that the law of Moses was for God's people a really big deal. Had any word from God been more foundational, a better guide? Surely not. Most of them would have thought. And it's here, it's on this point that Paul's opponents had chosen to attack, as we know from the first two chapters of the letter. We know we're saved by faith, Paul. We all know that. God's law still means something. Let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater, Paul. God's law hasn't gone away. The law of Moses still matters. Well, we pick up this morning right to where we left off last week. In the first half of chapter 3, Paul made it abundantly clear that as we began with faith in Christ... So we must go on living by faith in Christ. Don't go back to the vending machine view of religion, Dan taught us, where I pop in my coin and out pops God's blessing as my reward. And in our passage this morning, and Paul delves much deeper into what then the relationship between the law, which offers neither justification nor sanctification, And the promise, which offers both, is. And we will see that we must not, we cannot live by the law if we want to continue in the Christian faith. We must put down our clipboards. But we will also see that that doesn't mean that the law was wrong, a big mistake, irrelevant. So we'll consider four points this morning. And the first of those is um, don't live by the law because it was only ever a PS, a postscript. Don't live by the law because it was only ever a PS, a postscript. That's in verses 15 to 18. The law of Moses matters. Paul has no desire to deny that. The law had been with God's people for centuries And it was important. But, but, says Paul, there's something better. Something that has been with God's people for more centuries. Something that is more important. And that is the promise. Because long before there was law with Moses, there was a promise made to a man named Abraham. Unless we think that God's words to Abraham maybe weren't all that important, Paul gets out the big C word in verse 17, a big Bible word. See if you can spot it. Um, The law introduced 430 years later does not set aside the covenant 
previously established by God, and thus do away with the promise. God had been speaking to his people since long before Moses was even a twinkle in his mother's eye. And God had not just been having casual conversation with his people. He had made a covenant with them. A solemn arrangement, a commitment about how he would live with his people and how they were to live with him. And that covenant had been made centuries before Moses and the Israelites stood at the bottom of Sinai. The law of Moses was not the first word in how God would live with his people and they with him. The covenant was. And what was this covenant? It was one word and one word only. Promise. It was God's promise to Abraham to make him into a great nation, to make his name great, to bless the whole world through him. And it was all promise. God gave nothing for Abraham to do to establish this covenant. There was no side of the bargain that Abraham had to keep, no terms and conditions, just a list of things that God was going to do. Promise, pure promise, all promise. What then was the law coming along 430 years later in verse 17? It was a PS, a postscript added later at a particular point for a particular people for a particular season. It was not part of the original text. God's precious inheritance, the glory of knowing and dwelling with Christ for all eternity, in verse 18, was not now intended to come through the law. That wasn't what the law was for. It was more of a place marker, a watch this space sign, an interim measure. If you've been into the city centre in Oxford, you'll have seen um, that when they demolish an old building, they'll put up big boards, but they don't just leave them blank. They put pictures and and text uh, to give you some clues about what the new building on this site will be. Those wooden boards are not the new building. Try working, living under the scaffolding, and you'll get pretty cold and wet. The boards... Just an interim measure to point the way to what will come. And so the law was an interim measure put in place until the person to whom the promise to Abraham was ultimately addressed, the seed singular, Jesus, verse 16, would come. And then with that little baby gurgling under the Bethlehem sky, God's people would know what he really meant in those promises made to Abraham all those years earlier. So the law of Moses matters, says Paul. It's a big deal. But know that it was never intended to be the way that God's people would be saved. 
God had already, centuries earlier, made clear how his people would be saved. And that was through promise. The law was just a PS, a place marker, an interim measure, until Christ would come. And yet that's not how we tend to experience or, or feel about the law. In our sinful human hearts, we so easily slip into living by law, almost by default. As fallen people, it's our natural stomping ground, our happy place, the way we find it easiest to live, as Dan was saying last week. We get the system with the law. You put your coin in, you get a can of Coke out. What could be easier to understand, to follow, to live by? And actually, we quite... We quite like carrying around our clipboards. Like a child marking their homework with their mum or dad, we enjoy going down the page of sums. Tick, 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 tick. It feels good. Haven't I done well today? Aren't I a good Christian? Well done me. Pat on my back. Won't God be pleased with me? And if you're anything like me, there are probably little... Um, comfort zone areas of the law where you like to focus your attention. Why? Because those are the bits you find easier to keep. Find praying on your own difficult? I'm really good at corporate prayer with other believers. Find corporate prayer difficult? I have a really good personal prayer life. Not very good at praying on your own or corporately. Look how much hospitality I've done, how generous I am, how much I serve. Struggle to be on rotors? I'm an evangelist. Struggle to do evangelism? I serve the church. I'm on lots of rotors. You get the idea. We slip into living by law by default as fallen human people, having little laws to follow to help us to feel better about ourselves is our comfort zone, our happy place, and it's how the rest of the world works. We like carrying around our clipboards, and we like judging other people as well as ourselves by what's on them. Paul wants these Galatian believers to remember that living by law was only ever intended to be a PS, a postscript. And second, he wants them to see, don't live by the law because it is nothing like living by the promise don't live by the law, because it is nothing like living by the promise. This is verses 19 and 20. Uh, verses 15 to 18 lead to an obvious question. If the law wasn't God's square one plan to save, and nor was it an upgrade, salvation plan 2.0, what was it? A mistake? A misdirection? Verse 19, Paul asks... Why then was the law given at all? His answer, it was added because of transgressions. Transgression is a technical term for sin, a term that kind of paints a picture of sin as breaking rules, as violation. Maybe you've been out on a walk um, in the countryside 
Uh, and it's one thing to, um, to find yourself by accident in a field that you didn't realise was private property that you weren't meant to go into. It's quite another to see the don't trespass sign and climb over and into the field. And so we see the law was given because of transgression. Not to save, but because of sin. The law reveals our sin. Where we may not have realised, where we may have been in doubt, the law shows us that so many of the things that we do, that we say, that the thoughts of our hearts are wrong, are against God and against other people. And it shows us that that sin is serious. It matters. Just like the, um, the, on a packet of cigarettes, there might be a picture of, of tar-filled lungs to show the smoker what they're doing as they open that packet and take out a cigarette. And perhaps even in our sinfulness, the law increases our sin. It's an argument that the Paul makes in the book of Romans. Our sinful hearts are shown a boundary and we long to break it. Like the teenager or young adult in their first romantic relationship, asking, how far can I go? Can I do this? Can I do this? Can we go that far? The forbidden fruit looks so tasty. The law is about sin, not salvation. And we can see this, says Paul, from the way that it was given and the way that it works. Um, Because the promise has two parties involved, but only one party does anything. God makes promises, God keeps promises, God blesses and rewards. Abraham and his seed just receive. But the law, in verse 20, requires commitment. It requires action on two sides. Two parties make commitments with the law. Two parties resolve to do something. The people to keep and God to curse or bless accordingly. With Moses as a human mediator in the middle. And so the promise is not like the law. It couldn't be more different. For with the promise... God signs both sides of the solemn agreement. He signs his side. He hops around the table, knocks the pen out of our hands, and signs our side too. With the promise, God signs both sides of the agreement. He commits to being covenant maker and covenant keeper. He does it all. We just receive. The law is about sin, but the promise is about salvation. And maybe some of us are not yet believers, and we are trying to live by the law. We are trying to follow the rules, whether it's the rules of Christianity, the rules of another faith, the rules of secular society. We are trying and trying and trying. But the law will never save us. 
The law is about sin and not salvation. So give up trying to live by it. Turn to Christ. And for others of us, believers already, we have been saved by grace and yet we are tempted to head to the dustbin and to root out our clipboards and to start carrying them around again and ticking and crossing and crossing and ticking because we don't quite get how different living by law and living by promise is. We look at our Bibles and we go to passages like Jesus' call to take up our crosses and follow him in Matthew 16, the greatest commandment in Matthew 22, the great commission in Matthew 28, the second half of every letter, the warnings against blaspheming the spirit or taking the mark of the beast. And we say, look, rules, commands, lots of them. We are to live by rules as Christians. Jesus tells us they're all over the New Testament, the commands of God. It's not so different. You're making a mountain out of a molehill, Paul. Yes, of course, we're not saved by rules. We're saved by faith in Christ. We know that. But the Bible is pretty clear that there is much for us to do as Christians. That God really cares whether we follow his commands to give, serve, love, forgive, pray, read. We are to live by rules, we say. Paul's answer? Yes, And no. Does God give us commands as Christians to follow? Does he call us to serve him, uh, to leave behind sin? Does he prepare good works in advance for us to do? Does he call us to know him better and love him? Is he building his kingdom on earth through us? Yes, yes, yes. And isn't God's law good? Doesn't it show us what God is like, what Christ is like? Doesn't it show us a good, the best way to live? Yes. And don't we, as God's people, need his guidance? How would, how could the Israelites, freed after nearly half a millennium of Egyptian rule and about to head into pagan Canaan, a law unto itself, how could they have known how to live well with God without the precious words of the law at Sinai. They couldn't, and nor could we. And isn't God's law good for society? Christians get a bad rep now in the UK for our ethics, but even many secular scholars admit that the Bible spoke of the protection of the vulnerable, the limits of justice, the importance of hygiene, the wickedness of killing children, long before any other religion or secular courts got there. The foundation of even a secular society like ours today in Britain is still the law of the Bible. But, but we have to chuck out our clipboards if we want to understand how, as believers, to follow God's command. We have to chuck out our clipboards first if we want, as believers, to follow God's command. For if we are trying to do the good works God has prepared for us to do, because we think we must, to impress God or other Christians, to ease our consciences, 
because we're scared of God's disapproval, disappointment, anger, judgment. If we're doing the good works he's prepared for us to do, but maybe just still with a little bit of notepaper in our pockets where we just every now and then get it out and give a sly, sly tick, yes, I did that well, or, or a little cross, not, not good enough for God today. Then we have misunderstood, Paul says, we have misunderstood our salvation and doing the good works that God has prepared for us to do will not be a source of joy and growth but a source of anguish, strife, sin, struggle, and division among us. We have to chuck out our clipboards first. We have to realize that the good works that we do, the good works that we do not do, the bad works that we still do, do not one jot alter our standing before God. They don't make the slightest bit of difference. Jesus has paid for our every sin. We stand before God, clothed in Christ. God has signed both sides of this covenant, this solemn agreement. He is covenant maker and he is covenant keeper. We just receive. Paul wants these Galatian believers to remember that living by law was only ever intended to be a PS, a postscript, an interim measure. And he wants them to see that living by law is nothing like living by the promise. They are completely different systems of operation. Thirdly, don't live by the law because it will only lock you up. Don't live by the law because it will only lock you up. From verses 21 to 23. If they're that different, the law and the promise, then the obvious question, verse 21, is the law therefore opposed to the promises of God? Are they enemies? Are they working against each other? The law and the promise. Is the law just just wrong? Was it all a big sorry mistake? What happened at Sinai? Absolutely not. Paul writes in verse 21, For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. The law and the promise are not enemies. It's just that for a sinful people like us, there was no law that could ever have led to salvation. And the law isn't wrong. It's not against God and his promises. It was simply never meant to give us life. No law ever could give a sinful people life. But it was not a mistake. For God gave the law with a good purpose. The law locks us up. Verse 22. But scripture has locked up everything under the control of sin. Paul uses the imagery here of a, of a prison officer. And the law gives us, in verse 23, into the custody of sin. The law is not about salvation. 
and so it does not lead us to life. It is about sin, and so it locks us up. It is our prison officer, keeping us trapped in this cycle of trying to impress God and each other and failing, trying to prove to God and to each other and to ourselves that we are good enough, only to learn that we never can be. Its treatment is harsh. Its portions are measly. The law is our prison officer, holding us captive. How? Because it shows us the problem, what we have done wrong, but it can give us no solution in and of itself. It can show us the problem, what we have done wrong, but it gives us no solution in and of itself. It does not, it cannot help us to do what's right. Again, we're like the smoker. We see the picture of tar-encrusted lungs. It doesn't actually stop us from taking out the cigarette and smoking. Or the alcoholic um, reading of the dangers of liver disease as they pour themselves another drink. The law shows us the problem, how far gone we are, but it cannot give us a solution on its own. It cannot help us escape. It just shows us how desperate our need for help is. The law locks us up. And doesn't that ring true? Isn't that our experience of the law? Because think for a moment. You follow a law, and what does it say? You did a quiet time this morning, great. Do another one tomorrow, make it longer, and don't miss a day. You prayed this morning on your way to work, great. Did you remember to pray for this, or this, or this, or this? You only prayed for yourself and your own concerns? Come on, you could do better than that, says the law. You made it to the meeting, well done. But did you contribute anything meaningful? And did you even think to offer that person a lift? What does the law reward us with when we live by it? Another law. You did that? Great. Now do this. Do it bigger, do it better, do it more. It's like an addiction. The moment of satisfaction is so short and we're immediately left wanting more, never satisfied. Isn't that our experience of the law? It's certainly mine. As ticking and crossing on the clipboard, following the rules to get right with God, ever really led us to a place of joy and contentment and unity with our brothers and sisters? No. It leads to guilt and shame. It locks us up, says Paul. So don't live by the law. It will do you no good. And there'll be many of us who already know this. We're believers. We're trying to live by faith. We slip back into the law and it frustrates us. And there'll be others who are not yet believers, but who also can see that living by rules locks them up 
whether it's the rules of the Bible with no grace, the rules of other religions, the rules of secular society. The law is just a beast that takes and takes and takes and never gives you what it promises. It's always just out of reach. And so if you're not yet a Christian, if you are trying to live your life by a set of rules, give it up. There are far greater things for you to enjoy in the promise of Christ. So Paul wants these Galatian believers to remember that living by law was only ever intended to be a PS, a postscript, an interim measure. He wants them to see that living by law is nothing like living by the promise. They're totally different systems of operation. And he wants them to see that the end of living by the law is being locked up in captivity. And then finally, more briefly, and overlapping a little bit on the verses, our fourth point, don't live by the law because Christ has come. Don't live by the law because Christ has come. This starts in verse 22 and goes through to verse 25. Interesting, in verse 22, that it is scripture that has locked up everything. Did you notice? God has, in his word, allowed the law to lock us up. The law and the promise, they are not enemies. God is using the law for his good purposes. God has used the law to lock us up, but he has not thrown away the key. He has not left us in the law's captivity forever. Because verse 22 carries on. Scripture has locked up everything under the control of sin so that what was promised, being given through faith in Jesus Christ, might be given to those who believe. No amount of impressing the prison officer of the law is going to get us out of his jail or even reduce our sentence. Our best behavior won't be enough. But there is a key. And God has given it to his seed, singular, in verse 16. The one to whom the promise he made to Abraham was truly made and fulfilled. And the son has now used the key. The law says earn, but grace says given. The law says earn, but grace says given. Verse 23, before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. Verse 25, now that this faith has come. Brothers and sisters, we are locked up no more with Christ. The prison doors have been flung open. The fresh air has come pouring in. Our jailer has been stood down and we are free to walk out of the prison if we will. Paul uses the image in verse 24 of a guardian and think think the strict governess who lays down the law for the children with her words and with her cane. Well, she's been dismissed. Now that this faith has come, 
we are no longer under a guardian. Our parent has come. We have come of age. As we will see next week, we are now sons and daughters of God, not slaves. In Christ, we are heirs. So do not live by the law any longer. Throw out your clipboard, for God has thrown away his, and he has clothed you with Christ. Follow Christ, for faith has now come. Let's pause, and I'll lead us in a prayer. Father, we repent of how easily we slip back into using the law for something it was never intended to do, for living by the law as if we could make ourselves righteous in your eyes, as if we still must make ourselves righteous in in your eyes, even though you've given us Christ and done everything for us. Help us to give up measuring ourselves and each other by some imagined standard and to learn to live a life of obedience and faithfulness to you that comes not through attempting to justify ourselves but through simply enjoying the glorious grace of knowing Jesus Christ who died and was raised for us. Amen. Thank you.